Next chat is brought to you by Walters. While the national season may be winding down, fall sports are just around the corner. Are you looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft with over 30 TVs, free Wi-Fi, and buckets of wings and beers? There's no better place to host your draft party than Walters. With plenty of room indoors or outside on the covered patio, contact Brett at waltersdc.com to reserve your space today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the set of the pitch. Soto swings, drops into the air to deep left field. Back goes the left fielder, Goriel, and it is gone. Goodbye! A line shot over the left fielder's head and over the wall for an opposite field three-run home run for Juan Soto. He's ready with a set at the belt. Long hold. Guriel does not run, and the pitch is popped in the air on the infield. This is playable for Carter Keyboom, and he makes the catch. And Josiah Gray with another fist punch is excited about escaping trouble in the top of the sixth inning. So here's Semyon. And Semyon lines one to deep left field. This is trouble. Hernandez back. It's over his head, and this one's gone. Into the Blue Jays' bullpen. They've homered on consecutive pitches. Marcus Semyon has his second homer of the game, his 29th of the year. And in the blink of an eye, the Blue Jays now lead 5-4. to four. Runners lead second and first. And is ready. He deals. Swing a long drive, right center field. This one's got a chance. It's way back there toward the wall, and it's gone! Nationals lead 7-5. Three-run opposite field home run, number 20 of the season for Josh Bell. It clears the big wall in right center into the first row. And the Nationals treat their former teammate quite rudely. And welcome to Nats Chat Thursday, August 19, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. For the first time in almost a month, the Nationals have an actual winning streak. The Nats had not won back-to-back games, a mere two-game winning streak, since July 27th and July 29th. That slide, with no streak, is now done as the Nationals complete a two-game sweep of the Toronto Blue Jays at Nationals Park. An 8-5 victory on Wednesday. Brad Hand, it turns out, is still Brad Hand. And the Nats mark for a second straight day. Come back, have some big scoring innings, and look like a team that actually can hit a little bit here, even uh, with all the trades that were made in late July. So, I mean, we were saying all along, like, they were in every game when they were losing. They'd always bring the tying run to the plate. The boys were battling, and they just kept coming up one hit short. Well, the last two days, they got that hit and then some. And, I mean, some really nice sustained rallies. And, of course, in this one, a couple of big blasts. 
by their two best power hitters. And ultimately, that's what you need. But these are confidence builders. And you get great Josiah Gray start again. You get Juan Soto reaching base four times and homering. Josh Bell homering after a Juan Soto walk. Carter Keboom homering. So I know there's probably some people out there who are saying, no, we want them to lose. Like, we don't want them to win these games. Like, hang on a second here. Let's appreciate some good quality baseball, especially when it's coming from the guys who it's coming from. These are some of the building blocks who are contributing and doing this. So to me, nothing but good vibes from the last two days. And I think you should be very happy with what we saw against a good Blue Jays team that is in the race. You know, they just went head to head with them and swept them in a two game series. Yeah, a very good hitting Blue Jays team. And that's the thing. And you just said it. If you're winning on the backs of veterans who aren't going to be here next year, then that's meaningless. But if you're winning on the backs of young potential building blocks, that is meaningful. And the Nationals did that here over the course of this series. And with the Blue Jays lineup and with the aforementioned Josiah Gray, that remains the thing to focus on from this game on Wednesday. And Josiah Gray, again, was a positive. As the uh, great baseball philosophers, the Grateful Dead, said many years ago, every silver lining has a touch of gray. The Nationals right now have their touch of gray, Josiah Gray, and he looks great. And he was really good again on Wednesday. Now, does he have a home run problem? I guess to an extent, yes. Although when every home run you give up as a solo homer, it's not really that much of a problem. But Josiah Gray goes out there on Wednesday, two runs in six innings, again, against a really good hitting team in the Toronto Blue Jays, four strikeouts versus five hits, a walk and a hit by pitch. He throws 87 pitches in the game, 55 strikes versus 32 balls. He does give up two more homers. I mean, that's the big nit to pick right now. He gave up that leadoff homer to Teoscar Hernandez to left field, despite having him down to the count at 1.12, that coming in the top of the second. And then Gray giving up another homer, top of the third, two-out solo homer by Marcus Semien to left field. So that's now actually 11 homers allowed by Gray in 30 major league innings. That is a lot to have given up, but only... Solo homers have been allowed during his time as a Nat. All seven of the home runs that he's allowed as a National are solo homers. And overall, the run prevention is there. I mean, it's a small sample size, yes, so we need to see more. But 22 total innings over his four starts as a Nat. Guy's got an ERA at 286. I don't know that we realistically could have asked for much more from Josiah Gray so far as a Washington National. No, this is everything you could want from him at this age because you got to understand, in theory, he's going to keep getting better. If this is the low bar of what you're going to see from him, imagine what he's going to look like when he gets a little experience under his belt and starts learning hitters and how to face them and how to sequence them. And let's point out the two guys he gave up the homers to, Semyon and Hernandez. These are big-time quality power hitters. These are not nobodies that he's giving them up to. And this was on a day when it was about as sweltering as it's ever been here at Nats Park. The temperature wasn't that high, but the dew point, I don't know if you know meteorology, Al, the dew point was 76. That's insane. It literally felt like we were playing an outdoors game in South Florida, not Washington, D.C. That's how disgusting it was, but it also means that the ball is going to fly. So, uh, no, I'm not going to get upset about that because what he did, what Brad Hand did not do, is he didn't walk hitters in front of the home runs. If they're solo homers, like Max Scherzer always said, solo homers aren't usually going to kill you. And if you're not giving up free passes, you're not giving up singles and giving up the homers when there's runners on base, more often than not, you're going to benefit from all that. You're going to end up on top. And he did that. He came through with a big spot in the sixth inning to close out his outing. Again, he's faced the Braves twice and the Blue Jays once. Those are good lineups. He's facing power hitting lineups, maybe the best in the league on both sides. And he came away with quality starts. So I have no complaints at all. I'm very impressed, continue to be very impressed with what we've seen from him. 
Yeah, to your point about the walks, uh, Josiah over his 22 innings with the Nats, a whip of just one zero five. That's really good. You mentioned that sixth inning. That was a scoreless top of the sixth inning. Now, he gets into some trouble in that inning, gives up a two-out double to Teoscar Hernandez, followed by a two-out single to Lourdes Gurriel. But Gray began that inning with back-to-back strikeouts of Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, this is a heavyweight lineup, and Gray took on these guys and did really well in this game on Wednesday. So that's the takeaway more than anything. I mean, that's one great, that's hit a bunch of homers, great, you know, but Josiah Gray, like this is the guy to be focusing on more than anyone right now. And he so far is living up to the hype. Number 54 prospect in baseball per Baseball America's latest rankings, which came out on Monday. And there's really not to not like, you know, a couple of other things that stood out to me too from his outing. The defense from Josiah Gray, he crisply fielded that bunt by the Blue Jays starting pitcher, Jose Barrios, for a 1-6-4 double play for the first two outs in the top of the third. Barrios squares. Here's the pitch. And it's bunted back toward the mound sharply. Gray has it. He throws to second for one. Escobar to first. Two. It's a double play. And Gray with a big fist pump starts a 1-6-3 double play. That's a play a pitcher should make, but not every pitcher will make. He looked confident, made a really good throw to second base to initiate the double play. And Josiah had a hit in the game on Wednesday. This might be another national starting pitcher who can hit at least halfway decently at a two-out single in the bottom of the second. Swing a looper to right. That's going to fall in. A base hit for Josiah Gray. Up with the ball is Teoscar Hernandez. Get that baseball. The first major league hit for Josiah Gray. He's a good athlete. Let's remember, he was a shortstop in college, and he's only been pitching full-time recently. So he knows what he's doing out there. I agree on the defensive play. He looked very comfortable out there on that play. Looked like a good, solid swing. And Davey joked uh, afterwards with him that he actually has one more hit than Max Scherzer has this year. (laughs) So there you go. Another sign that they won the trade, I guess. I don't want to, you know, hyperbolize this or make too big a deal because it's still only four starts, but like, there is so much to like about him so far. The quality of the pitching performance, the all-around game at the plate in the field, the poise on the mound, and he's just a delight to talk to and everything else. I mean, he he looks like the complete package. And again, I I don't want to raise the bar so high here that, that, you know, eventually he may struggle and he may not turn out to be who we think he is. But I mean, so far, you could not have drawn this up much better for Josiah Gray. It is the silver lining. It is the touch of gray with the silver lining. Uh, or something like that. Josiah Gray's done a really nice job so far. Excellent to see him do as he did in this game on Wednesday. With the Nats bullpen on Wednesday. So it's been kind of odd with the bullpen here, right? Because, you know, you're down to all these kind of lower level relievers, at least with the way things had been prior to trading away the likes of Brad Hand and Daniel Hudson. The bullpen lately actually really hasn't been that bad. It's been like one or two guys, though, who have had issues in games. And of course, that's the problem. When you're using like three, four, five relievers, they're not all going to be on. And so if even just one or two are not on, that can end up dooming you. And sure enough, one guy was not on in this game from a bullpen perspective for the Nats. And that was Ryan Harper, uh, our guy. We've been advocates for Ryan. And uh, I kind of feel like now we'll never see Ryan Harper pitch again of what ended up happening in the top of the seventh on Wednesday. I mean, Davey has not been apt to use Ryan. And uh, I don't think that that uh, is going to increase in any way after this outing. Ryan Harper giving up three runs, getting just one out in the top of the seventh inning, issues a leadoff eight-pitch walk of Randall Gritchick, then gives up back-to-back one-out homers over two pitches, a one-out first pitch, two-run homer by Corey Dickerson, followed by a one-out solo homer by Marcus Semien. That inning was such a buzzkill, the top of the inning anyway, 
because the Nets went from leading 4-2 to trailing 5-4. Then, though, did a great job of battling back in the bottom of that inning. We'll get to that momentarily. But the rest of the Nats bullpen, by and large, did well in this game. Mason Thompson bounced back top of the seventh, faced two batters, got two outs. Andres Machado faced four batters in the top of the eighth, began the inning with back-to-back strikeouts. He did then get into some trouble. That's true. Back-to-back two-out walks sandwiched around a wild pitch. So if you want to say he wasn't very good in the game, okay. But like I said, did begin his outing with back-to-back strikeouts. And then Kyle Finnegan, you know, maybe this is the setup for the future. Josiah Gray is the ace. Kyle Finnegan is a closer. Really nice four-out save for Kyle. One into third scoreless innings. Comes into the game. Top of the eighth. Runners on first and second. Two outs. Nats are up 8-5. Induces the flyout by the pinch hitter Alejandro Kirk to Juan Soto for the third out. And then shuts the door in the ninth inning with an interesting defensive inning there for Luis Garcia. So uh, some interesting stuff. And I thought for the most part, good stuff. Really save for Ryan Harper from the Nats bullpen on Wednesday. Yeah, I agree with that. Finnegan, we are seeing, is for the most part rising to the occasion when he's called upon here. And he's having a lot asked of him for someone who does not have very much experience in those kind of spots. But he has more often than not come through. And even, you know, the other night when he kind of blew the game with him on the mound, well, he did his job. He was giving up ground balls and the guys behind him weren't making the play. So he's a ground ball pitcher. And it happened again here in the ninth, gets the ground ball, thought it was going to be the third out. And then whoops, look out on the Josh Bell errant throw. Thankfully, he then got another ground ball and Garcia made that play and that was the end of the game. He's showing that he can handle this stuff. I don't know if he really is a closer long term or not, but I think he is showing that he can be a high leverage relief pitcher for them. Machado has shown some good things. This was not the best because of the walks later on. Thompson, after a meltdown the night before, comes back, gets a couple big outs there after Harper's fiasco. And you know, we keep saying, why isn't Ryan Harper pitching in more situations of consequence? And the answer has been, they don't really trust him against opponents' best hitters. They think that that curveball, as good as it is, plays better against weaker hitters at the bottom of the lineup. And well, what happened? Oh, look out, back-to-back home runs. And if they kind of know what's coming, they can sit on it. You know, one of those was a curveball that was like way down in the zone, but they're waiting on it and look at what happens from it. So I agree. Uh, unfortunate, even though the ERA is still under two, my guess is it may be a little while until we see him in a high leverage spot again. But the rest of them, yes, there's going to be one out of four every night that maybe doesn't do it. But in the bigger picture, I think we've seen good things from Finnegan. We've seen good things from Thompson, good things from Machado and Clovis at times as well. That There are some building blocks there to work with. Yeah, it was kind of a sad shot on Masson after Harper's outing. He was sitting by himself in the Nats dugout. And actually, it was kind of a cool scene. Davey Martinez walked up to him, patted him on the back, obviously said something to him. But Ryan's done a nice job this year. It was not a good game, though, for him on Wednesday. Nats Chat is sponsored by Silver Brands Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season 
for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Bichette off second. Finnegan ready. The 2-0 pitch, swing a ground ball up the middle. Garcia slides back, hands from a knee. His throw on the money. In time for the out with a stretch by Bell. And the game is over. A curly W's in the books. With Luis Garcia, though, defensively in that top of the ninth inning. So for a second straight game, we kind of see the good and the bad from Luis. And I know you talked about this in the last installment of the podcast. He can make the great play, and then sometimes the routine play is an issue. Now, the Josh Bell error play. The pause, the kick, the 1-1 pitch, swinging a ground ball right side. Bell goes for it. Finnegan covers, and Bell throws it away into the camera well. Just past the Nationals' dugout. I don't want to put all of that on Luis Garcia, but it did kind of look like maybe that should have been Luis Garcia's ball. I mean, Josh Bell had to range way to his right, and then he made a horrendous throw in trying to get that ground out, uh, or what should have been a ground out, but was, and ended up being ruled a two-out single by Bo Bichette, and then an advancement to second base on the air. You know, I don't know if you put that on Luis or not. It kind of is like one of those things that you'd like to see your second baseman make that play, not your lumbering first baseman have to range to his right to make that play. But then Luis Garcia, what a job on the game-ending play. Terrific play to end the game. 
a great sliding backhanded catch on the outfield grass behind the second base bag while sliding toward third base and then throwing against his momentum to first base for a game-ending ground out by Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, that kind of range, that kind of athleticism, that's a shortstop play. Like, we talked about, well, is Luis Garcia more second baseman or a shortstop? That game-ending play, that's a play a great defensive shortstop will make. Yeah, and as we've said, he's got the flash in him, you know? He's going to make the spectacular play. The issue is going to be the routine plays, and can he make them consistently without those kind of mistakes? And that's what they're going to work with him on. That's what makes you as a big league middle infielder is you make all the routine plays. The flashy plays are great. All those are a bonus. But first and foremost, make the plays that you're supposed to make. And I got to reveal a little bit behind the scenes here stuff on the uh, the bell play. So because I was sort of serving as a de facto sideline reporter, I guess, for this game, for Masson, uh, I wasn't down there all game, but I was down there for the ninth. And at that point, I'm in the stands kind of close to the dugout. And I've got to get on the field as soon as the final out is made. So I see the ground ball to the right side and I start to stand up and start to walk down the steps. And then I notice, oh, wait, the throw went wild. Nope, I got to go back and sit down again. So I didn't get a great look at it. I certainly didn't get to see a replay or anything like that. I could hear FP Santangelo on the broadcast kind of questioning if Garcia should take charge on that. And I'm going to trust him as a former big league infielder that he knows how that should work. But regardless, it's they are very fortunate that that did not come back to haunt them because there's that little bit of a moment like, oh, no. Uh Uh-oh, look out. Here we go. This one isn't over yet. No, and especially with what had happened in the top of the seventh, you knew that the game wasn't over until it was over, but the game soon was over, and the Nationals came away with the win. Well, with the Nationals offensively on Wednesday, the Nats do a great job for a second time in as many games in this series, and the Nats get to an X-Net in this game in Brad Hand. Brad Hand in this game for the Blue Jays had his sixth blown save of the season. He gives up two homers, is charged with three runs, He gets just two outs. So I know the majority of the lamenting when it comes to the national sell-off has had to do with Trey Turner and I guess to a lesser extent Max Scherzer, but whatever lamenting there was for Brad Hand, I'm guessing probably isn't happening. Look, Brad Hand was great at times for the Nats this season. He also was not so good at times for the Nats this season, and I think Toronto is uh, in the midst of the Brad Hand experience right now. But with the homers offhand, no homer was bigger, obviously, than Josh Bell's. And it had been a while since Josh Bell had homered. He had not homered since August 5th, but he came through big time. I mean, this is actually one of Josh Bell's biggest hits as a Nat here this season. A tie-breaking three-run opposite field homer to right center offhand for a 7-5 Nats lead in what ends up being a Nationals four-run seventh inning. Like I said, it was a buzzkill what happened with Harper in the top of the seventh. Nats are trailing at this point 5-4, and then Bell delivers in the clutch. The homer going a projected 396 feet per stat cast, and the homer is Josh Bell's 20th on the season. That was a huge spot, and Josh Bell delivered. Great to see that. Yeah, and he did it in a situation that he has found himself in a lot, and he's going to continue to find himself in a lot, and that is coming up to bat after Juan Soto draws a walk. Soto drew three walks in this game. Bell came up three times, first time double play, second time fly out, third time three-run homer. And I asked him about it. He has always said from the day that they acquired him that he embraces this idea of being the protection for Juan Soto. He knows they're going to pitch around Soto. He's comfortable with that. He used to do it when Andrew McCutcheon was the Pirates' number three hitter. And, you know, he's not going to come through every time, but he doesn't feel like that moment is too big for him. He likes being in that spot. He likes having the opportunities. And while he hasn't done it every time, he has come through a good number of times for them this year. And as we said, the numbers kind of keep going up 20 homers in 120 games. So that's three quarters of the season now. 
that's on pace for what, about uh, 27 for the season. I think people would be pretty happy if Josh Bell ends up with 27. And I believe, I have to look this up, but that point in mid-May when he was at his low point, 133 batting average, and then took off from there, it's about 80 games, 81 games since then. So it's about half a season, and he's got over 50 RBIs in that time. So that's 100 RBI pace. I know we're not going to talk RBIs, but that is a sign of something, okay, (laughs) that you are producing with runners on base, and he has done that a good number of times. Yeah, I mean, what still is lagging with Bell, if you want to do like a statistical deep dive, are the rate stats. The rate stats still are not very good. It's amazing. Like, I've been tracking these, and I'm like, okay, they got to be better now. He's been good for months, but they're still not that good. You know, batting average, to whatever extent you want to care about that, 241. His on-base is only 304. Josh Bell does not draw walks. That, that to me, is still a real hole in his offensive game that you'd like to see improve. I know it's not easy, though, with Juan Soto batting in front of you. And he's slugging 459. So you want to see those rate numbers go up. But to reach the 20 homer plateau is a nice thing. He has driven in some runs. That does matter. That does count. And uh, there's a huge hit. That was a huge hit that he had in the game on Wednesday. And then also homering off Brad Hand was Carter Keeboom. Pitch to Keeboom. is hit to deep left field down the line toward the corner. Forget about it. It is long gone. Carter Keeboom, home run number three on the season. Nationals lead 8-5. That one about halfway up, section 105. A no-doubter off the bat of Carter Keeboom. What a shot. And Carter Keeboom continues to rather quietly potentially be blossoming in front of our eyes here as a batter. You know, we'll see what this ultimately proves to be, but Keeboom crushed a pitch from Brad Hand. A one-out first pitch solo homer to left field for an 8-5 Nats lead in that Nats 4-run 7th. That homer going a projected 402 feet per stat cast. So for Carter Keeboom now, 87 Major League Plate appearances this season. He's got a 356 on base percentage. He's only slugging 419, but he's batting 270. He looks so much more comfortable at the plate. You got to wonder if this thing of, hey, you're out there, sink or swim the rest of the season is working in his favor. I mean, you know, it's human nature to where you would think that that would work in his favor. I would think there's also kind of an element here for him of, I got nothing to lose at this point. I mean, things have gone so poorly for me over the last few years. Like, I might as well just relax and just see what I can do. And if it doesn't work out over the final two months, we'll probably be playing for another organization next year. But maybe just maybe he is playing himself into being the Nets every game third baseman next season. Yeah, I agree. I, I noticed that comfort level that you're talking about. He just looks more comfortable at the plate. Doesn't look tense. He's not. Remember all the times last year he'd taken a called third strike that's right down the middle. It's like, what are you doing? What are you watching a fastball go by like that for? He's not doing that. He's much more in control of his at-bats. You know, the results haven't always been there, but he is hitting the ball with more authority uh, and just having quality at bats. I still think in the field, there's a little bit of shaky stuff going on. I wouldn't say he looks 100% comfortable at third base yet, but at the plate, I think he does look a lot more comfortable. And I agree. It's just a case of, hey, the job is yours. No pressure. Just go out and play. And you got another 42 games to show us what you got, and then we'll make a decision after that and see where to go. But my hunch would be is that if he keeps this up, keeps doing it to somewhat to this extent, that knowing how many other holes they have to fill this winter, they're probably not going to go out and try to find another third baseman on top of all that. I would think that Carter Keeboom, you know, maybe even more so than someone like Garcia, is probably pretty secure if he continues to do what he's done here for the last several weeks. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, you say, well, let's see more and let's have him as our third baseman for next season. It would be funny 
this would be a third straight offseason in which we're told Carter Keeboom's the everyday third baseman for the upcoming season. And we'll see if the Nationals actually deliver on that next year. But, you know, you don't have to cement it that, okay, he's our third baseman in perpetuity, but at least for next season, let's see more. And if he does well, then you say, all right, you know what? This guy is, in fact, more hit than miss. By the way, Carter Keeboom wears eye black to an extent that few guys in Major League Baseball do these days. Does anyone on the Nats wear eye black quite like Carter Keeboom? He's got like a thick line under each eye for every game, regardless of the sun status, I feel like. He's a ball player, Al. That's what yeah. he is. He's a ball player. You know what I noticed last night, the Tuesday night game, and I, I didn't even notice if he did it again. Soto had like the Bryce Harper war paint thing going on. Oh, really? Like early Bryce Harper. It was like the straight across and down a little bit as well for a night game. I had no idea what that was about, and I didn't even notice if he had it again today. Yeah, that kind of struck me by surprise. But yeah, Carter Keeboom is a Georgia boy who plays the game hard and looks the part <laughs> for it. Uh, and hey, if it leads to uh, success like he's had, then by all means, go for it. He can wear a tutu. If he's going to hit like this, then go ahead and do it, man. Do whatever you got to do. Well, you mentioned Juan Soto. To anyone listening who's young and never got to see Barry Bonds at his roided up peak, the game that Soto had on Wednesday, the batting line, this is exactly what it used to be for Barry Bonds. Juan Soto on Wednesday had a three-run homer and three walks. And that is Barry Bonds circa 2002 right there. Soto with a huge hit early in the game. Three-run opposite field homer to left field in the bottom of the first off the Blue Jays starting pitcher, Jose Barrios. Uh, you know, I talked about Josh Bell having not homered in a while. That homer for Soto, just his second homer since homering on July 27th. Obviously, he's not been getting a ton of pitches to hit. Uh, but he comes through big time in the bottom of the first. And then it was a bunch of walks the rest of the game. Soto, one out, five pitch walk, bottom of the third. Uh, two out, six pitch walk, bottom of the fifth, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. And then Soto, a six pitch walk off Brad Hand in the Nats four run seventh. That was the intriguing matchup. Hand comes into the game to face Soto. You know, I, I think every Nats fan was saying to him or herself, well, is Soto going to go deep here offhand? And Soto did not, but Bell and Keeboom obviously did. But Soto wins the matchup from a perspective of walking, and he ends up with three walks in the game. Soto now has a 443 on base percentage on the season. That is absurd. I mean, a lot of guys would kill to slug 443. This guy's getting on base at a 443 clip. The walks keep on coming. He's taking his walks. And in this game, he delivered a homer as well. I'll give you an even more astounding stat. Do you want to guess what his on-base percentage is in August? Oh, my gosh. 500, I'm guessing? 569. <laughs> it's insane. He's slugging 583, which is really good, too. But his on-base is almost as good as his slugging is. That's how much he's getting on base. A ton of walks and obviously getting hits as well. But you're right. Barry Bonds is the only comparable as far as somebody who just would not get anything to hit and was willing to take his walks. And then if you made that one mistake to him, he was going to make you pay for it. And that's exactly what Soto did here. I mean, he drove that ball to the opposite field for a three-run homer, gets them off on a good start against a good pitcher in Jose Barrios. I know he was coming off a rough start and this one wasn't so great from him, but that's a quality big league starter. He just did that against. And I give him so much credit because it's got to be tough for him what he's going through right now. Seeing the team being dismantled, knowing you're never going to get anything to hit. And he's not flinching. He's taking his walks and maybe even so too much. So I asked Davey before the game, you know, the one thing we've seen from Juan here lately, he's taken a lot of called third strikes that he gets a little upset about because they're maybe just off the edge of the plate. And he's got the best eye in baseball. So you're going to trust him over anyone else. But I asked Davey, like, would you actually almost prefer that he expands his own just a little bit for some of those and not, not make him borderline calls? 
And Davey said, actually, yeah, especially with two strikes, if it's the right situation for it, like you don't ever want him to lose that trait that he has, which is so good. But at times, like we see he can do damage on a pitch outside. He can drive it to left field. So if it's in a place that he's still comfortable with, it's okay. You don't have to take every single pitch that's on the edge. You know, we'll see if he ever comes around to do that or not. It's certainly not a big problem that he isn't doing it, but it might be the only way that he gets a chance to hit a little bit more. Yeah, I know that's been a criticism of Joey Votto over the years that like he's almost too good at taking walks and he should take more risks when it comes to swinging, especially with men on base. But it is such a fine line to walk, right? Because no pun intended, but it's like if you have walks there being gifted to you, take them, get on base. Like that's a good thing. You're doing your team a good service. But of course, if you're an elite hitter too, it's like, well, it's not the worst thing if you swing at some pitches a little bit outside the zone to try to generate some more run production. So now that's a balance only a guy like Soto himself can strike. But I mean, to me, he's striking it. You know, we've talked about it. He's having a 300, 400, 500 season, which very few people can say they've done. And he's rather comfortably in that territory now. 304 batting average, 443 on base, 517 slugging percentage. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflicts. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. Tickets for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg National season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today. The sidearm offering is shot up the middle behind second. It gets by, sending it into center field. Keeboom headed home. Gritchick's throw is cut off by Guerrero, and Ryan Zimmerman comes through. His hot smash was too hard to handle for Marcus Simeon. It goes by him into center field, and the Nationals lead 4-2. to two. A few other observations from the game. Another good game for Riley Adams. You know, you talk about the Nats winning a trade. Uh, at least on this day, the Nationals won the Brad Hand trade, that's for sure. Hand struggling. And Riley Adams, who was the Nats starting catcher in both games in this series, two for three with a double, a single, and a hit by pitch. He had a ground rule double with two outs, bottom of the fourth, had a single with two outs, and the Nats one run six, and then he had a two-out hit by pitch 
in the bottom of the seventh. And, you know, the Nats had some pinch hitting success in the game one victory in this series, some more in game two. Ryan Zimmerman with a great pinch hit, what was initially not ruled a hit, but uh, ultimately correctly was uh, ruled a hit. A pinch two out first pitch RBI single in the bottom of the sixth inning. Zim smoking that baseball up the middle of the hit for Statcast in exit velocity of 102.1 miles per hour. You know, we've noted Zim in pinch hitting scenarios actually hadn't been that great this year. He's been better lately, and he certainly was good on Wednesday. Yeah, and that was a smoked ball up the middle first pitch, which a lot of times as a pinch hitter you want to do first chance you get at one against a uh, you know a tough side arming righty in Simber who was just brought in to face him. And I agreed. I mean, <laughs> watching that live, I couldn't believe I had already penciled in the single in my scorebook. I couldn't believe that it was called an error when you consider how hard it was hit, how kind of out of position Semyon was, and the ball ate him up. That to me is a definition of a hit. So I'm glad that they did ultimately change it. But that was an interesting call because they're ahead and Josiah Gray's at 87 pitches. And you're thinking maybe you let him keep going for another inning. And Davey said, no, we're, we're going to go for the insurance run here and put Zimmerman up there. He delivered, got them the extra run. Now it turned out they needed that and more at the end of the night. But one of these days, I think we're going to have to see if Josiah Gray can come back out for another inning. I, I get it why they're being careful with him. And we called it you know, the night before that He's probably not going to get much past 90, and in this game, it's at 87. Sort of that gray area. If he had a quick sixth inning, I thought there was a chance that he might come back. But the fact that it was a little bit of a longer inning and that his spot in the lineup was coming up, I can understand why they pinch hit for him, and it all worked out in the end. Yeah, and I could see Davey, too, being like, all right, two runs in six innings. That sounds good. That looks good. That's going to make him feel good. So let's close the book on that. Like, that's not really how a manager should think, but they're human beings. I could see him thinking that way. Let's go to my bullpen and see what happens. It's like a George Costanza leaving on a high note. Davey understands that. <laughs> All right. That's it for me. <laughs> Be good, everybody. Leave him wanting more. Davey knows. Exactly. He's a showman. Davey's a showman uh, at the end of the day. So the Nationals uh, will have the off day on Thursday. You know, we wondered about this game on Wednesday. Would it get in with the rain? Uh, thankfully, there really wasn't any rain. I know early in the day in the DMV, certainly where I live, it did not look like this game would be played, but the game was played. So the Nats are off on Thursday and then begin a nine-game road trip on Friday night. Game one of a three-game series at the National League Central leading Milwaukee Brewers. So, you know, this has been kind of a re-stiffening of the schedule here over these last few series with the series against the Braves, the series against the Blue Jays, and now this series at the Brewers. So some tough competition. Have the Nats announced the starting pitchers for the series of the Brewers? No, they have not. Now, the off day and the fact that, you know, they just had the Joe Ross issue, they were kind of going day to day with it. But they had said because of the off days that they don't need a fifth starter for the moment. So if we go based on the way it was last time, it should be Corbin, Espino, and Fetty. And I think Fetty should be okay for Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So yes, Fetty would be good for Sunday. And then they have another off day Monday. So they they could wait a little while till they have to go to Sean Nolan or whoever. I don't know who that fifth starter is is going to be at that point. That's going to be quite an adventure the rest of the way. So I think as long as they keep everyone on full rest, they'll stick with the four that they have right now. But boy, the Brewers can pitch with the best of them. And they're going to get a taste. I haven't seen who the matchups are, but they're going to get a taste of probably some elite pitching. And that's going to be a real test for this lineup. Now, they look good the last couple of days against Toronto. Let's see how they do against Milwaukee, who everybody's talking about the NL West and obviously the NL East because it's kind of a wacky race to see who ends up on top. Don't sleep on Milwaukee. In a short series, I like their chances with that pitching. That is a good team that I think has every chance to beat anybody in the National League. 
Yeah, Brewers are a very smart team, very into analytics with David Stearns, the manager, Craig Council, has done a really good job. And the Brewers are an example of a team that rebuilt very quickly. The Brewers, at one point, their owner, Mark Adonazio, put out a letter saying, hey, we're going to essentially start tanking and just be prepared for that. And they ended up turning it around really quickly, where as soon as 2017, the team had a winning season again and has made the playoffs now each of the last three years. And, And I bring that up in part two because I noticed this on the YouTube telecast of game one of the series against the Blue Jays. So a lot of times with national announcers, right, they talk to both teams' management, right? And they get a lot of stuff like off the record. So Dan Plesak was the analyst for the game on the YouTube telecast. And Plesak, during the game, spoke in a way that, to me, very much communicated that he had been told this by Mike Rizzo. And that is, the Nats aren't planning on some long-term rebuild here. And that the Nats' goal and every intention is to try to be good again for next season. Now, maybe that's lip service and that doesn't come to pass. Maybe that's the plan now and the plans change come the offseason. But the way Plesak said it, it really sounded like that wasn't just like his intuition or his take. That sounded like he had been told that by Mike Rizzo. So I think just something to keep in the back of your mind if you're a Nats fan wondering about, well, what is the immediate future for this team in terms of like beyond this season? It doesn't sound like internally the Nats are planning on, you know, closing business for the next three to four years here. That's the sense I've gotten. I think the real question has been 2022 and how much are they going to spend? How much are they going to try to to bolster what they already have? We know they have some young building blocks that are going to be part of the mix, but we also know there's a lot of other holes. And the question is, do they spend some money to try to fill those holes with just placeholders? Or would they actually go out and try to get somebody who could be part of the long-term plan as well? We don't really know the answer to that. But I agree, everything that I've heard suggests that they aren't looking at this as a four or five year rebuild. This is a, you know, probably 2022 is still going to be a rough one. But by 2023, they expect to be seeing a lot of the fruits of it. And certainly by 2024 at the latest, they expect to be winning again. Now, a lot of things have to happen between now and then. But if over these final two months, you're already establishing some building blocks for you and you know there's a couple more that are close that are coming there's going to be a pretty solid foundation for them to start with going into next season. And I do think it's a fascinating question of all the money that came off the books from all these free agents, what are they going to spend and who are they going to spend it on? And would they make a move that we wouldn't necessarily think a rebuilding team would do? Or are they just going to sort of patch it together for one year and then look to go big in 2023? Well, it's been a while since the Nats spent big money in free agency, right? Patrick Corbin is the last truly big deal, right, that the Nats signed a free agent to. Not a re-signing, but like an an acquisition signing. So, you know, that's going back, what, to the 2018-2019 offseason. The other thing, too, that I think has to be kept in mind is this. You know, you have Juan Soto, right? And he's maybe the best hitter in baseball. You have him under team control through the 2024 season. Are you going to waste those remaining years of team control rebuilding and just shutting it down and tanking? I tend to think not. Like, who knows if they sign Juan Soto long-term or not, but while you have him at this, you know, at this incredible affordable price, take advantage of that, maximize that, and, and don't waste these years of Juan Soto. So I would think that that maybe is working in the favor of this thing not being some kind of extended rebuild here of hey, we have this franchise player. Let's not just, you know, lose 100 games in the next two to three years. And then by the time we're good again, Juan Soto hits free agency. Right. No, I definitely believe, and in, in, uh, the sense I've gotten, I've written about this as well, is that if you could boil this down to one primary objective that they have now for the rebuild, it is this, that by 2024, which is Juan Soto's last year before he can become a free agent, 
you are fielding a winning team again for one of two reasons. Either, worst case scenario, you still have a chance to win with him one more shot before he leaves. Or best case scenario, you convince him, hey, I want to stay here because this team is ready to win again. So I absolutely think that is part of the goal. It's a question of how do they get to that? Is 2024 their first shot at winning or is there a chance of it happening prior to that point? Yeah. And uh, that may not be something they can control, right? It's kind of like maybe you can try for it to happen earlier, but you can plan these things out and it doesn't always work out exactly how you plan. So we shall see. Well, you can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast. We get a lot of thoughtful emails, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Joey in New Jersey emailed us actually about something that we hit on on the previous installment of the podcast. It was about Riley Adams potentially being the Nationals' first baseman for next season. Although the way we spoke was more, well, first base could be an option for Adams. Joey's thinking is, well, maybe no, Riley Adams becomes a guy who can be your Josh Bell backup, and you know maybe even more than that. Who knows? Because Josh Bell is only under team control for this remaining uh, season after this year. So he's under team control for one more season. Writes Joey, says, I don't know if Adams' bat is good enough long-term to hold down that position, but why not try? The best case is he rakes and you have your future first baseman. The worst case is nothing. There is no risk. Yeah, I mean, it's probably more of an off-season thing. I don't know that it's something you try now, but why not try to expand Riley Adams and what he can be for you in terms of his position playing? Yeah, I think it is something they will look at, but I also think they're not just going to abandon the catching thing, which he's done for a while. And he's, you know, developed himself to be a catcher. He believes he can be a catcher long-term. And we're just assuming that Caber Ruiz is going to be a star behind the plate. And maybe he will be. That would be great if he is, but we haven't seen him in the big leagues yet. So let's hold off on that until we see that actually happen. And you can never have enough options behind the plate. So you would love to see Adams prove that he can handle that job as well. And then if there's some time to play him at first as well, maybe when Bell needs a day off, that's a good thing. Give it a shot. We don't really know what Riley Adams is long term. I mean, he's not an elite prospect. Let's not turn him into something that he's not. But what we've seen from him so far, there's a lot to like. Certainly power potential. He's got the body type that makes you think more like a first baseman than a catcher. But give him time. He's still young. That's a move you can always make at any point. It doesn't have to happen right away. I do sense, I've I've heard from people in the organization that they've had the thought. And it's just a matter of um, how far they want to go with it. But I think, at least for now, they would view that as he's a catcher who could play first base as well, as opposed to a full-on position switch. Yeah, and... First base is something that you put a guy at as he's aging. When a guy is young, you really lessen his value if you put him at first base. You know, you have Bill James came up with it years ago, the defensive spectrum. And first base is like all the way on the low side of the spectrum. It's a low value defensive position. So you want a guy like unless you're a great hitter, you really don't want to be playing first base. You want to be doing something else. Catcher is the number one spot on the defensive spectrum. So if you can do that, that really increases his value. So yeah, don't just give up on that now. It's a guy who's just made his way to the major league level. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up via email, natschatpodcast at gmail.com, including if you have a voice memo, you can always ask us a question or make a comment in voicemail form. You can just record yourself into your smartphone and then email the file to us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us too, at nats underscore chat. We would like to issue a challenge to all of the Nats chat listeners out there, as Pat McAfee says, be a friend and tell a friend. So obviously, we have a lot of Nats fans listening. You likely know of many more Nats fans. Pick two people who you know who are Nats fans who don't necessarily listen to this podcast and let them know about this podcast. The word of mouth, the grassroots uh, efforts 
uh, to expand the listenership of the podcast. We would appreciate so much. And uh, we know that there are Nats fans everywhere, as we have come to find out uh, more and more as we've done this podcast. So spread the word. Uh, We continue to appreciate all of the positive feedback, all of you guys listening. Uh, You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. And I mentioned the voice memos. One of the things we've been doing, we've had a lot of fun doing this, is getting tales from you guys of your October 2019 experiences, where you were, how you consumed the Nationals' run to a World Series championship. We got this very interesting and entertaining voice memo from Alex Tubin. So we will leave you with that, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. This is my memory from October 2019. My first memory would be Game 5 of the NLDS. It was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement on the Jewish calendar. And so it was a long day of praying and it was a warm day, I seem to remember. And the Dodgers game wasn't looking too good. Um, I believe we were down three to one. And I was streaming it on my phone. And after a long day of not eating, I fell asleep and woke up as the top of the ninth had just ended and saw that it was tied 3-3. So I dozed off for a good 30 minutes to 45 minutes and missed Rendon and Soto's back-to-back home runs. Um, My next memory would be World Series Game 4. So this would be the Saturday night game. We'd already lost Game 3. But my wife and I had recently moved from D.C. to Baltimore, and we decided to come back down to uh, Washington, D.C. to watch the game, and we watched the game at the beer garden. The game itself was pretty disappointing, but as I am in the beer garden or or just arrived in the beer garden, I notice somebody who looked like Tim Shovers uh, sitting at the table. The reason I knew who Tim Shovers was because NBC Sports Washington at the time had started televising the Nats Daily Podcast. So I saw Tim and he's dining with his wife and got to talking with him and you know, that's the reason why I'm a listener of the podcast, because Tim has since we've had a little bit of a direct message relationship on Twitter, and he told me about the Nats Chat podcast, and now I listen to it on a regular basis. And um, I look forward to the Nats getting good again, hopefully with Soto still in uniform, and um, hopefully with them re-signing Soto to a nice long extension and getting back to the World Series, and then hopefully sharing a beer with uh, Tim Shovers at that World Series the way we kind of did two years ago. So, happy memories. Here's the pitch. He swings and belts one a deep right center field. Way back! Going! Going! And gone! Goodbye! Halfway up the pavilion, a tremendous game. Tying home run by Juan Soto. And this game is all even. The Nationals' dugout goes wild as Soto crosses the plate. He has tied this game. He drives in his second run of the night. It's his second home run of the series. And Dave Roberts on his way to the mound. The Nationals have hit back-to-back home runs off Kershaw. It's the Nationals' three and the Dodgers' three. With nobody out here in the top of the eighth inning. And Kershaw is done.